an interesting phenomenon has occurred in the two weeks since Francis functionally attempted to end the Latin Mass. Given that many bishops are openly defying him on this point now, it's an, it was, seems to be only an attempt. The secular commentators, who rarely touch on issues in the church, have largely come out in support of Francis's move, which isn't really all that surprising. The devil hates Latin, as exorcist father Gabriel O'Morth has said, and it would stand to reason that he hates any form of the liturgy that is designed to bring to life in front of the laity in attendance that the Mass is really the sacrifice on Calvary which bought salvation for us at a very high price if we will only receive it, and not just some community meal commemorating a happy memory of our Lord. And as I said, many secular commentators, but certainly not all, we have stories out there in some secular circles where people are left scratching their heads at not only Francis's action but his hypocrisy on all of this, and set against this is the viciousness with which one of Francis's own bishops was left dangling in the wind in front of the whole world when his mass at the imperial capital here in America was cancelled by Cardinal Gregory, and that cardinal has since spoken out against Francis's edict, and in ways that surprised me. So, this clearly is beginning to backfire against Francis, and whether that'll persist or not remains to be seen. But it is going to have some interesting effects in the coming weeks, so let's have a look at this story in greater detail. Now let's begin with the story from the secular outlet. Now, now the outlet is secular, but not the author. It's written by a Catholic author who often contributes to Rorate Celi, as the author is himself a traditional Catholic. It's penned by Kenneth J. Wolfe, and the fact that the New York Daily News chose to run it is not exactly insignificant. So from the New York Daily News, we get this. Headline, Let Loyal Catholics Pray in Latin. Now again, this piece isn't exactly, uh, you know, going to be written by an angry, mad radtrad, and the New York Daily News isn't exactly known as a Catholic outlet. It's a typical lay-run newspaper with a typical worldly focus, though again, the author is it would be counted among the traditionally-minded Catholics. Now, bear all that in mind, because he is going to point out something here. He goes over examples of how this document was sloppy and written by someone with no knowledge of the Latin Mass at all, which is astonishing when you think about that, given that the document was written for Francis by some very high-ranking prelates. Quote, The sloppiness on the details is a product of what happens when a papal document is obviously written by Italian liturgical amateurs with a tone of contempt for those who offer and attend Latin Masses, rather than authors experienced in liturgy and current practices with respect to churches where the traditional Mass is offered. One example is a line mandating the respective epistle and gospel readings of a Mass to be read in the vernacular. If the authors of the document had any insight as to the normative operation at Latin Mass parishes around the world, they would know those passages are already commonly read in the vernacular from the pulpit following their reading in Latin at the altar. For now, most bishops caught off guard by this directive, even from among the innovators, have extended permission for priests to continue the status quo of offering traditional Latin masses as planned. One exception is the Archbishop of Washington, who flip-flopped on offering permission for a large mass, planned months ago with his consent, that would have attracted several thousand people. Still, some bishops opposed to this have even invoked a section of canon law to waive their diocese from the entire directive for the good of the faithful. A growing trend. What is missing from the new restrictions from Pope Francis are the two virtues he has lectured Catholics on since becoming Pope in 2013. Mercy and charity. 
The irony is rich that receiving communion has become a rite for anyone who dissents from church doctrine, while Catholics who prefer the form of the Mass that dates back hundreds of years may not be welcome at the church near their home, end quote. Much has been said by myself and others on the topic of the sloppiness of the document. This is evident in the canon law loophole that was left in, which easily could have been closed by this motu proprio since, well, that's how you change canon law, or at least it's one accepted method for changing canon law. But it wasn't done here. But instead, let's talk about the issue of Francis's lack of charity, even to his own loyalists. Pack-a-pop of Francis has always spoken a great deal about charity and mercy, and that's fine. Catholics should practice charity and mercy. We must, in fact. Christ told us to. But Francis isn't really that charitable himself, at least towards those of us who want the same faith as was taught to and held by our forebears. He extends charity to everyone in the world, but as but us meanie-headed trad Catholics. Now, that's nothing new, but his own people get thrown under the bus by this move as well. As I mentioned earlier in the week, Archbishop Gulickson attempted to say Mass at the National Cathedral in the Imperial Capital, and was rejected by Cardinal Gregory. That Mass had been scheduled well in advance, and many thousands were expected to attend, which would have meant a nice tithe to the Archdiocese. But Gregory changed the schedule and eliminated that Mass, despite Archbishop Gulickson being on the schedule and numerous laity making travel plans to attend. Even better, the, though the, card, the Cardinal was met with a charitable letter requesting he change his mind by one of the lay organizers, and in response the Cardinal reiterated that the Mass was being ended. Now, for those who don't know, Archbishop Gulickson was a papal nuncio for Francis to two different countries. That means that Francis had at least a neutral attitude towards him, and that Gulickson had never done anything overtly against Francis. I want you to bear that in mind. Now, to all of this, Archbishop Gulickson has issued a couple of responses on his own website. One short response, which I'll read in its entirety, and the other longer, of which I'll only read an excerpt. And I'll have a link to both of those as well as the New York Daily News article on my sources site at returntotradition.org. That's the name of this podcast with the .org at the end, in it, which is a good place to follow me so you can find out what's going on in the church in case you missed something here. And I'll uh, thank the listener who sent me the New York Daily News article. I, uh had meant to read it and actually had forgotten about it. And then I saw that in my email inbox, and it was quite helpful, so thank you very much. Now, the Archbishop makes reference to something called the Paulus Institute, which was a lay organization that organized his pontifical high mass at the cathedral, and who also wrote the letters requesting Gregory change his mind. And he hits on something here. Why is Francis, the presumed pontiff, despite his own rejection of historic titles for the pontificate, why is the shepherd scattering his own sheep? That is not action we should expect from the shepherd. Quote, the Paulus Institute made a measured declaration about their disappointment over the D.C. Cardinal's prohibition of our vigil mass of the assumption planned for our country's national shrine. They did well to do so, and their statement fits the bill. My own disappointment over this bureaucratic dismissal of good people's best efforts has no real importance. I do not see myself as a man on a mission somehow stymied by whomever. I would have loved to enjoy this gathering of good and believing people in Mary's house in Washington. It was not to be. For me personally, that sort of sums it up. As such, I have nothing to say beyond the statement of the Paulus Institute, but as I ponder this picture from the Corpus Christi procession in the Sacred Theology Conference back in June in Spokane, I wonder why some are so taken up with trying to scatter the sheep. Care frumente gentes. Why would anyone pretending to be of Christ's church lash out at the lambs? In his New York Times article of yesterday, Ross Duthot seems to think 
that those who, regarding the motu proprio, prognosticate the success of this latest attempt at suppression of the mass of the ages, do not have all the present variables in hand, which makes our world different from that of France in 1848. I think he knows what he is about. Another day is coming. Be of courage, little flock. End quote. Do not be afraid, is what he is saying. We'll get more to that in a moment, though. Now, there the Archbishop references a piece by Ross Duthot in the New York Times, which celebrated the decision and even likened it to not only France in 1789, which means Paul VI is Robespierre, John Paul II is Napoleon, which maybe Ross didn't think too carefully about before he made that bad analogy, but also he says that Francis's efforts to ban the mass are akin to actions in France in 1848, which were meant to cement the secular gains made in 1789 by Robespierre. That's an interesting analogy, but as the Archbishop points out elsewhere, to positively compare the Church's efforts at Vatican II to that period of Church history is not the analogy anyone in the Church should make. I'll go further. We meanie-headed treads make that analogy all the time, and when Cardinal Swenens positively beamed when he made that analogy himself, it was in celebration of what looks like the Church rejecting its own dogmas for those of the world. We meanie-headed traditional Catholics know what it is we're saying when we say that, but figures like Ross Duthat don't think about the implications, and the Archbishop is quick to point that out. But he goes further. Archbishop Gulickson called the called Fran what Francis and Gregory did malevolent and violent, and it was. It was sheer wickedness, and I've gotten some flack for saying Francis was wicked to do it, but I'll double down here. His edict was evil, and it was an attempt to separate the institutions of the church today from the historic past of the church. Quote, what has brought on this violence today in the church? It is the same deep-seated hatred of the apostolic faith which was at work back in the 1960s and 70s, and which still perdures among an ever-diminishing old guard and their clueless recruits. They seem to have imbibed that same hatred which recovated churches and burned books and vestments, with no respect for the devotion of a generation now mostly gone to their eternal reward. This kind of animosity cannot be met by the same, but rather by the steadfast adherence to the truth and the love of the old mass, which has captured the love and imagination of not few young people in our day and time. The innovators, the violent, are kicking against the goad, so to speak. End quote. In other words, this action is going to fail. The traditional mass will prevail. It will survive. And there's nothing Francis and his merry band of modernists can do about it. And Gulickson is not wrong either, nor is he the only one to point this out. Which brings us back to the New York Daily News piece. The author rightly points out that the only group who will really benefit from Francis's move in the long term are probably the Society of St. Pius X, who are not in schism, no matter what some bishop says, even if they are one of the allegedly better bishops of the church. There's a whole process about that, and frankly, what their entire mess doesn't fit the bill. They have an irregular canonical status with the church, meaning that they are in legal limbo, but they are fully in communion with the church. There's no such thing as partial communion, and that's not the language the SSPX or the Vatican has used on this matter. And their legal limbo status is based on a dispute over the edicts of Vatican II and illicit changes made to canon law by the Vatican in an attempt to stop Archbishop Lefebvre from keeping the society in existence. I've always been pro-SSPX, and not much on earth will change that for me. Now, the author points out the same thing many of us are saying. The SSPX will benefit from this. Quote, Francis's new directives attacking Latin masses at neighborhood parishes will undoubtedly increase the number of Catholics leaving their local churches to attend mass offered by SSPX clergy. It is unclear if the authors of the papal document gave any thought whatsoever to this outcome. 
Then again, it is unclear if the authors gave much thought to anything of substance besides an obvious act of vengeance towards Catholics who attend the traditional Latin Mass. In fact, even, even leading voices from the innovative wing of the church were surprised to, as to just how far the directives went. Massimo Fascioli, a Villanova University professor who is often quoted defending Pope Francis, reacted to the Latin Mass attack by stating, This is more radical than most of us expected. The vindictive tone from Francis and its mass confusion have caused chaos in many dioceses in the last several days. Don't be surprised if more bishops look at their flock of practicing Catholics and side with them instead of an unnecessary act of animosity from the Vatican. End quote. Now, some have suggested that the intent was to drive us all to the SSPX, so that Francis could then declare them formally to be in schism and excommunicate them and us along with the society. That would be unwise, to put it mildly, since there would be no cause to declare them or us in schism, but I think there is validity to that concern. Whether it happens isn't worth speculating on, so I won't do it, at least not for now, other than to say that I think there may be some truth to it, given things going on in the secular world right now. Things that the society priests and many of their laity have spoken against when the institutions purporting to be of the church have come out in favor of. If you don't know what I'm obliquely referring to, watch for what the man I call Caesar does in the coming days to this land of ours, and you'll see. That's all I can say here. We'll all be living in 2020 again soon. I'll close with these words of St. Leonard of Port Maurice, who was one of the greatest minds in the church, but has largely been forgotten in our time. He tells us that Mass said without reverence, without devotedness, without devoutness, is indeed efficacious, but not as efficacious, not as merit or grace granting as one said by the priest with reverence and devotion. And the same can be said of the other sacraments as well. This gets to the heart of the matter for the typical traditional Catholic, for at the heart of the matter is the faith itself. We want the faith with all of its unpleasant duties, well, unpleasant to our decadent modern ears, and its practices that are clearly at odds with the world at this time in history. That is what we want. But according to St. Leonard of Port Maurice, there is more to it than that. Quote, now then, consider the spiritual bewilderment of those who go in search of the quickest and least devoutly conducted masses, and what is worse, assist at them with little or no devotion, nor have any zeal in causing them to be celebrated or in selecting with that view the more fervent and devout of the priesthood. It is true, according to St. Thomas, that all the sacrifices are, as sacraments, equal in rank, but they are not, therefore, equal in the effects resulting from them. Once the greater the actual or habitual piety of the celebrant, so much the greater will be the fruit of the application of the Mass, so that not to recognize the difference between a tepid and devout priest, in respect to the efficacy of his Mass, will be simply not to heed whether the net with which you fish will be small or great, end quote. I recommend if you want to hear more from St. Leonard, you check out Restoring the Faith's Sermon from St. Leonard, the famous Funus of the Save Sermon. Every Catholic should hear it and ruminate on its meaning. Now, what do you think about this? Will this blow up in Francis's face, or will the bishops who appear to be on our side really turn and support Francis in this? Let me know your thoughts on this in the comments, please, because I know people are have opinions about that coming from all sides of that question. And also like and subscribe to the channel if you haven't. It really does help. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.